the key for us is going to be, unlike traditional resorts, we're going to be closer to the population center so that people can make this a two to four hour experience any day of the week. Because I think we will appeal every economic demographic, every cultural demographic, every ethnic demographic. The ski and snowboard industry is really working hard. And they've got some fantastic programs in place to help people who are underrepresented in the sports get into the sports. But it's hard when you have to travel hours, the cost, the seasonality, all those things. We solve all that. Welcome to the storm. host, Stuart Winchester, headed indoors today. Before we get to that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, follow the Storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. The Storm Skiing podcast is brought to you by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. When this thing drops on your porch, and I say that because it's too big to fit in your mailbox, you're going to wonder whether you should read the thing or frame it. The cover to the most recent issue, 195, will absolutely floor you. It captures a hotshot firefighter mid-blaze battling one of last year's monster wildfires. And it is also unfortunately timely as those fires have ignited again across the West. It's not all drama though. It's also a lot of fun. Photographer Jason Roman drags us down snowy roads on motorcycles with the Crazy Eights Motorcycle Club in upstate New York. Ryan Psalm's ecstatic photo essay on cliff jumping will have you Googling directions to your nearest mountain swim hole. And Lee Cohen drops some bombs from Alta, and you know you're ready for that right about now. Mountain Gazette owner and editor Mike Rogi is the engine driving this whole thing, and his opening editorial is absolutely beautiful. It's the kind of thing you read slowly and repeatedly. And when you do get to that firefighting essay by Amanda Monti, you're going to be moved by the courage and dedication of the firefighters and appalled by how little we pay them to risk their lives for half the year. There's a whole lot more. You need to subscribe today at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 51, John Emery, CEO of Alpine X. Where do most of us learn to ski? Not at Vail, not at Stowe, not at Mammoth. Most of us, not all of us, but most learn to ski at the local bump. And we yo-yo up and down that 200 vertical feet until we get it and we graduate to the bigger hills. But there are only so many local bumps and they need two things to exist, hills and cold weather. And both of those things are in short supply in large portions of the country. As a result, tens of millions of people live nowhere near a ski area and will probably never try it. But what if we built more little hills and drilled them with cold air. This is not a new concept. Indoor ski areas have existed for decades, just not in the United States. At least not until two years ago when Big Snow American Dream finally opened in New Jersey. But there's no reason that it has to stop there. 
These things have enormous potential, both as standalone businesses and as factories churning out new skiers and sending them to established resorts across the country. If we had a network of these things positioned around large metro areas around the United States, there's no telling what the multiplier effect could be for the larger ski industry. This, in short, is Alpine X's business plan. Put skiing where skiing doesn't currently exist and put it there all year round and watch it grow. They're just getting started with a huge ambitious plan that could change who skis and who thinks of themselves as a skier in this country. Let's hear it. My guest today is the CEO of Alpine X, which hopes to open up to 20 indoor snow sports facilities in the United States. Its first resort in Fairfax, Virginia, will be a 400,000 square foot complex with a year-round ski area, hotel, restaurants, ski shop, and a mountain coaster. Prior to founding Alpine X earlier this year, he spent 13 years in real estate development, and he was the CEO of Great Wolf Resorts from 2003 to 2008. John Emery is my guest. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited uh, to talk about Alpine today. Well, let's start with life before Alpine X here, John. I gave the Cliff Notes version in the intro, but tell us a bit more about your career up to this point. It sounds like you've had a really interesting ride. Where did you start and how did your career evolve up to the point where you decided to found Alpine X? You know, thanks for that question. It's it, It'll sound like a bunch of different experiences, but it kind of all ties together. I actually started off as an accountant. I worked at Deloitte out of college and became a CPA. Um, and from there, I went to work with one of my clients, which was a small hotel operating company. And we wound up building a pretty significant um, hotel management company. Uh, from there, I wound up uh, investing in what ultimately became Great Wolf Resorts. The uh, and built that, took it public, um, built a North American, U.S. and Canada footprint there. The um, so a lot of different things in the background before Alpine, but the common thread really has been pretty basic. I learned from my earliest days working at fast food in high school, which was it's all about team building and having a great team. But it's also about thinking of these businesses as service businesses and not real estate businesses. So I'm technically in the real estate business for most of what I do, but we think of it like a service company. And so if you think of the guests and the experience you want to provide, that literally has been everything from accounting through hotels, resorts, and working in a restaurant. It's been the same kind of mindset all along. So you've had this very rich history, John, where you're doing all these different things. Uh, and then we get to the point earlier this year and Alpine X just kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, where did the inspiration for Alpine X come from? So the uh, I joined the Alpine team. I invested in it first and and with, without the intention necessarily of coming in and, and, and running the effort. The uh, a group of people based out of Washington, outside of Washington, D.C., uh, one of which was from Europe with a lot of experience indoor skiing, had the idea of bringing the experience to the U.S. So already a great team 
when I uh, stepped into it as an investor and ultimately a CEO. The, but the, the idea has been around forever. It's, it's throughout Europe, Middle East, and, and now even Asia. And um, it's fun bringing it into the U.S. The, the response to our announcement of what we're trying to do has been just fantastic, not just from the winter sports community, but really from the community in general of, of something close to home that people can do year-round without worrying about weather and seasonality and things like that. So, John, how did you go from investor to CEO? What what made you want to step into this more and say, oh, wow, this is a really special opportunity. Uh, I want to lead this thing. That's a, that's a good question, because the, um, the, the you know, following Great Wolf, uh, my partners and I have, have, have invested in, in quite a few things. And it's really the opportunity to build something for the community and, and even broader than the indoor water park industry. The cool thing about this is our target market is literally everybody. And I, I kind of call it cheating from a marketing standpoint. <laughs> I don't have a defined demographic. I mean, we really want to build an experience that is easy for people to get to, cheaper for them than traditional vacation type resorts, and particularly cheaper than ski resorts, the, uh, and completely inclusive so that the entire community and in the Washington, D.C. area, where our first one is in Fairfax, is a good example, where everybody feels like this is for them. Not just people with money, not just people who grew up skiing or boarding, but everybody feels like there's something at our resort that was built just for them and what they want to do with their friends and their family. So it's a huge opportunity. And then when you look at the the core activity of skiing, I mean, typically folks who get into skiing have a huge passion for it. Uh, are you a skier? Have you always been a skier? <laughs> I, I am an active skier. The um, I have not always been a skier. You know, when I, I grew up, the I grew up in a family without funding for traditional skiing. And I don't think boarding was even necessarily around yet. <laughs> When I was younger, the, um, the, the at least not much. But I, I grew up uh, right outside the Washington, D.C. area in Virginia. It's a mid-Atlantic. Um, so no experience uh, skiing as a kid. The, the after college, um, started skiing with friends like a lot of people do in the mid-Atlantic. So I'm what you would call a typical mid-Atlantic um, skier, recreational skier. A lot of great local hills around here, just fantastic ones that we like. I go out to Colorado. I try and go every other year for the bigger experience. Um, so I'm, I'm right in the middle of the pack. What we're building is literally designed for everything from, you know, beginners, recreational. And, and we'll have a big focus on competitive level training and competitive events as well. So much broader than just recreational skiing. Right. So where you're skiing now when you say the Mid-Atlantic, is that places like Wisp, Whitetail, uh, Massanutten, uh, Virginia, Maryland? Yeah, Wintergreen in Virginia. Massanutten actually does a great job at at having a lot of family stuff, things to do outside of skiing. That's one of our, um, you know, thoughts as well. The uh, Whitetail up in Maryland. Uh, I like uh, West Virginia Snowshoe and Timberline are really fun to go to. They're a little further from DC area, but not too bad. And then you have all the Poconos, um, Pennsylvania resorts as well. So it's pretty easy to get to quite a lot of fun places from the DC area. 
What's challenging is the seasonality and conditions. And if conditions are good, then you also have challenges with lift lift lines and things like that. Just you know, some right. of the things that frustrate you. You finally get good conditions, which have been spotty in Mid Atlantic for for a while now, and then uh, then you know sometimes it can be tough when you get there too. <laughs> the the whole Mid Atlantic and and Southeast ski culture is very interesting to me. I I, I think it's fascinating that there are mountains down there at all and. And they tend to, from my experience, the places in these marginal climates, they they really know what they're doing as far as snowmaking goes because it's so challenging all the time. So they actually seem to deal with the thaws and such better than, say, northern Vermont, where they're used to just having good snow and good seasons. But uh, but yeah, I've seen some of those lift lines when it snows that it's uh, it can get pretty out of control down there. Yeah, and they do a good job. A lot of them have, have really modern snowmaking now down here. The, uh, and like I said, it's always fun, and and, and they'll have non-skill activities too. They're good, at, you know, tubing and, and other things to do. The so they're always fun. It's just you're dealing with a relatively short and unpredictable season is the is the tough part down here. So I, I'm curious here, John, and I do want to talk about the facilities and everything more more specifically, but. It, we've seen a lot of people over the past year and a half kind of really reassess their lives as COVID has kind of upended everything and changed the way we've done things. And I, I've seen articles about the great resignation and people just changing career paths. And it, it, I'm just curious because you launched this or got involved in it in January of 2021. Did, did COVID have anything to do with you changing your career path? Cause you did, as I mentioned in the intro, you were in real estate development for over a decade. Uh, and now you're pivoting to, to take on this huge and hugely interesting project. Did that have anything to do with it or is that just a coincidence? Uh, you know, COVID had a lot of unintended consequences in, in a positive way, in a sense. And I think one of them has been a focus a little more on lifestyle. The, um, the, in our real estate development, we, we've done a lot of work um, in outdoor living. And, and that's real. Ironically, part of our story is we're building an indoor facility that act, <laughs> to, to promote outdoor living. Our, our whole business model is based on people getting an experience with us and translating that experience into better outdoor living. So, um, you know, maybe we can talk more about that later on here, but, but for me, the, um, the, the, and this was, this was in the works prior to COVID the, the business plan here, but it does, I do think that um, work schedules becoming more flexible and remote will allow people to um, enjoy things and avoid crowds more. That was one of the things that we did during COVID is, is what outdoor activities we did. You know, we may have done more midweek than we normally would have and things like that to avoid crowds. So I think there'll be some, some benefits, not just for Alpine, but for skiing and all other kinds of activities where people might put a little more flexibility into their into their leisure lifestyle and try and take advantage of those kinds of things. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, what we saw during COVID is a huge demand for um, things to do close to home because people weren't going to fly. And, and we're, we're probably avoiding driving significant distances too for vacation type stuff. So in the mid Atlantic, 
every lake, all the beaches were just really busy with people looking to escape in a safe way and keep their family and friends safe as well. So that, that does lead into, you know, help the kind of things that we're looking at doing, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, John. I think the, the opportunity to expand into new markets as, as this midweek market grows that didn't exist before is enormous. Let's talk a little bit more about the potential. Uh, help us understand the landscape of indoor ski areas around the world. How many are there? Uh, how long has this technology and this concept been around? So there's roughly, uh, the, the, it's been around 30 plus years I want to say, you know, I'm familiar with some of the, as early as the early 90s, and there may be earlier ones that, that I'm not aware of. There's roughly 30 in Europe, um, give or take. The uh, they, they are, the Middle East has built a handful, and Asia has, has built um, several. The um, and, and, and the U.S. has been looked at before. Um, the, the I think the biggest difference now, and ironically, Dubai, which we all thought was really different when we heard it was being built, set a good example, Ski Dubai, the, of really creating a resort atmosphere, not just focused on people who are enthusiasts in winter sports already, right? So really opening it up, the concept up. And that's frankly what the difference is now in making this work versus maybe a couple decades ago is getting the mindset out of we're building something for skiing and boarding. What we're really building is a large resort entertainment venue with skiing and boarding at the core. So skill sports at the core. But if a group of friends, family comes to do something, they don't all need to do skill sports to have a great time together. And that's the big difference that I think you'll see with us and across the country eventually is really opening the mindset up to get it beyond just the core. Um, and you see that at other resorts too. Again, I'll use Madison Nutton as a local example. They have an indoor water park. They have golf. They have all kinds of things for people to do outside of just what they're known for, which is their ski resort. And so taking that concept and putting it really close to people where they can drive there in 20 minutes instead of two to four hours, I think is what hopefully makes this work in the U.S. There's a lot of echoes there, John, of Great Wolf. And I'm not sure, I don't think everyone's familiar with the Great Wolf Lodge, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about what those facilities were like as far as, you know, I'm picturing uh, when I was at where there was a water park and it was full of kids and then literally right next to it was a bar where all the adults were. Uh, so, so could you just talk about the, the, the sort of mixed use uh, entertainment complex that Great Wolf was and, and how these ski facilities might mirror that to create that true diversified resort experience? Yeah, so Great Wolf, um, just a fantastic example. And all the credit goes to the team there. We just had amazing people focus on the brand and the operating experience. The, um, I mean, my job in these things is to really, you know, pull the team together and, and, and help everything move in the right direction. The, um, but, but the people that, that, that conceive of and execute the operating experience do just an amazing job. And what, 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 what Great Wolf proved out across the country was that creating an environment that's comfortable for everybody. So while, you know, it's primarily people with kids that use it, 
the environment makes everybody comfortable. So it's not a kid's environment. It's not, you know, it's not dad invading, you know, a kid's property. It's really built for everybody. And that comes back to that Northwoods theming, which is not too dissimilar from the ski lodge, you know, the lodge theming that, that Alpine will have in that sense. But you're really trying to create an experience that everybody can relax. And even more so than what the Gray Wolf model proved out. And a lot of, of competitors have come in. I mean, there's there's dozens of indoor water parks across the country now, um, all popped up in the last 20 years. It's just an industry that came out of nowhere over the last 20 years. But what that um, really proved out that if for our business, one of the big factors that that we will do is take a lot of the intimidation out of learning our sports, right? So it's when you go to an outdoor ski resort for the first time, I can remember I did it as an adult and it's, it's a little intimidating and a lot embarrassing when everybody around you, you, you feel like in your mind is more skilled and they're flying past you and you're trying just not to run over people by having like a dedicated learning area and, and there's the one up in New Jersey does a great job of this big snow, but it just, it, it makes people more comfortable learning. It makes them more comfortable building their skills up. And when they, when they take that to the outdoor, they get so much more out of their outdoor resort experience because they built that confidence up. So if we can create an environment where it's not just fun, but it's also relaxing and you don't have that nervous factor that beginners have in general and going to outdoor ski resorts, the, um, it's good for the whole industry. It, it really makes the entire experience across the board more positive for people. So it sounds like what you're saying, John, is, is for this to work and succeed long term, it, it really needs to be a, a true resort experience. And one of the questions I had for you was, the the famous boondoggle of the Tokyo Snow Dome, which was probably <laughs> one of the more well-known ones. So th- this facility opened in 1993. Uh, it cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build, and it, it actually was demolished in 2002 uh, at, the, at the, a, a greater cost than it was to build. And it's now, uh, it's now an Ikea. That site is now an Ikea. So, so you know, I believe that was a ski only facility. But but when you, when you look at that, I'm, I'm sure you've seen case studies and, and looked at that. What do you learn from such an expensive project failing? What did they do wrong? And, and, and how do you avoid that fate? The, well, I think it's been a shift. So that, that property um, opened in the early 90s. It, it closed in the early 2000s. It was certainly built for um, winter sports enthusiasts. It, it didn't have that broader mindset. Um and it was huge. I mean, it, it was one of the things that, that we've learned from Europe, Ski Dubai, Ski Egypt, is that the experience um, needs to be varied to make it really repeatable. And so it's not as much about the longest indoor run in the world or the tallest indoor. It's about having a really fun, repeatable, but also varied so that you're not doing the same thing for hours in a row. So they're built very differently now than that one was. Um, the And it was just cost. It was $400 million in 1993. 
I mean, our whole resort is maybe a little over half that. So they were, I think it was like 80 or $90 they were getting. And, you know, we're not going to cost that much in 2024 when we open. The, uh, the whole idea of what we're doing is to make it easier and way more affordable than even outdoor skiing. So I think it's, and, and look, there's examples. There's certainly in my old world, indoor water parks that, have, that closed up and didn't make it as well. So things happen as things grow and it's easier for us. Well, this is a new, a new level of new type of resort in the U.S. The, it's been done and it's been done well. And so that gives us a lot more confidence than we're not creating the idea from scratch. We're taking what's been done. We're, we're, we're broadening it out for our market, for the U.S. market. Um, and I think that's kind of what gives us the confidence that what we're doing will work well. The, um, but, yeah, I think in any business, when things start, you're going to see things that are done and didn't work as well that we can all learn lessons from. It's really interesting what you say, John, about the boredom factor, uh, because that's the first thing yeah. that comes to mind when I think of these indoor places. It's like, oh, geez, how many times can I ski, you know, 150 vertical feet? So uh, as you've as you've studied these facilities, and I'm not sure if you've had the chance to visit them, but I'm, I'm curious, what has stood out to you as as working really well to help make an interesting skiing experience um, because you don't want this to be a novelty that people just do once. Say, okay, I did it, but yeah. uh, you know, back to the mountains. So, so what, what? How many have you visited, and what have you seen that's worked? So, the, <laughs> before I jumped into this with both feet, even with one foot, the uh, I visited a bunch of these. The so I've I've skied um, the uh, six in Europe. I was at Big Snow last weekend. The um, and the great thing is they're all fun. The um, the experience it depends it depends on what you're doing. The, the, the terrain parks probably get the longest um, time of use by per individual there because our, our terrain parks indoors can be every bit as challenging as terrain parks out, outdoors. So th- those are a really cool factor. But what we found was the, the, you don't want people doing the same run all the time. So you vary the way people can come down a hill. Um, I mean, we have the basic green, blue, black, and train park indoors, smaller versions, obviously, than outdoors. The, uh, but that's the whole trick is to vary it up, but also to add the other experiences. So I don't expect people skiing to check in at eight o'clock in the morning and leave at five. The, uh, I think in our experience, people will come out, they'll ski for a couple of hours, they'll do some F and B, do one of our many other experiences that we have there. If, if they're staying at the hotel, they'll go back and ski in the evening, which a lot of this I learned with the indoor water parks. People don't spend eight hours in indoor water park either. If they're staying at the resort, they come in, they use it for a couple hours in the morning, they go out during the day and do other tourist stuff, do other things in the area, come back, have dinner, and do and and use the facility again that evening. We'll see the same kind of thing here for our, our resort guests. 
And for locals, the great thing is it's a great two-hour experience. When we went up the big snow, we skied two, two and a half hours, something like that. It was fantastic, and that was enough. If I was staying in the area the extra day, I would have gone back and done it again. The um, But it makes it to where after school or after work on the Tuesday night, you can come out and have fun, keep improving your skills, and you're not committing even a half day, much less a weekend, um, to go enjoy that experience. So it sounds, John, like the institutional knowledge is there around the world. They've they've mastered the technology. Uh, they've mastered the idea of making a small indoor hill as interesting as it can be. But yet, 30 years after this technology came out of the scene, we only have one indoor ski area in the United States, which is a huge ski market. Uh, and that's been open less than two years. Why do you think these facilities haven't yet taken root in the United States? I mean, the basic answer is economics. The uh, the the there are, you know, if you're the traditional focus has been on how many skiers are in a market <clears throat> to make a facility like this work, and the numbers don't work as well. Forty percent of our revenue will be outside of our ski dome, right? So the the our other experiences, our non-skill activities, our food and beverage, our entertainment, all those things will drive the revenue that makes this facility work. The fact that we're going to have our entire community, all economic demographics, have experiences that they can enjoy here on whatever budget suits them. Um, the You can come to our resort for free. You, can, you, you, know, you don't need a ticket to get in the front door of the resort. So that creates an economic model that is more realistic and better for what we um, what we're trying to accomplish, but that's that's the challenge of getting over, and that I think mixing the family resort background with the competitive skiing background, like a lot of our team has, I think that mix is what makes this work. So, what's the potential here, John? Because the United States does have a lot of very good outdoor ski areas, and it has some of the best in the world, uh, but there's large parts of the United States where there aren't ski areas and there never will be for obvious reasons related to weather. So what's the potential for indoor skiing in the United States? The, I mean, we think the potential is pretty broad. The, um, the, our, our focus early on will be your, your biggest major markets, mid Atlantic, Northeast, a couple areas on the West coast, the, um, the, the Southeast U S. So, Southwest U.S. The uh, I mean, those are are demographically easier places to start because you have of the millions of people that, that that will be in close proximity. Where it goes from there will be a little bit of a learning curve. The uh, and it's the same way in any any large business that you launch. The 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 what is the cutoff demographically? When I'm talking demographically, I'm talking about strictly number of people. I'm not too worried about percentage of current skiers, percentage of current boarders. I'm not very worried about economic demographics. Like I said, we're going to appeal to everybody from an economic standpoint. So I'm really just worried about total people. The um, and I don't know what that cutoff is. We will learn when we get the doors open on the first few as to what we can, we can evaluate the draw, how far people are coming, what percentage of the population is interested 
and using our facilities on a repeatable basis. And from there, you can figure out, is this a you know, 6-8 market in the U.S. or a 24 market in the U.S. phenomenon? I can tell you when we did this before with the indoor water park resorts, the appeal both geographically and demographically in terms of size of market is way better than we first envisioned when we first started mm-hmm. building out our footprint. Is a reasonable standard here, John, maybe a metro area with a professional sports team, of, <laughs> of, you know, maybe NHL, NBA, MLB, that, that that's, they've sort of proven the concept that there's it's, enough people there interested in spending money. On it's, fun, it's funny you say that because the, uh, sometimes that's, We'll say just think of NFL cities as a as a rough, you know. And there's thirty, what thirty, thirty two, something like that of them. The um, the the uh, that I mean, they, they tend to be in your bigger markets. That's a rough way to think about it. The um, but yeah, that's that's that. You know, we announced that that we we think this should work in twenty plus markets, and that's kind of where that mindset comes from. Mm-hmm. And when you look at U.S. cities, I'll kind of break these into two big categories. So you have cities like Dallas or Miami or Atlanta, where there's no skiing anywhere near them. And then you have cities like Illinois and uh, Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland that have little hills near them. Um, Do you have a a sense of of where you'd rather focus first? Is, Is it where there's no access to skiing like Miami or where there is access to skiing, a place like Detroit, and Michigan has the second most ski areas of any state, it, 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 are, are you trying to are you trying to look for markets that where this is new to people, or, or do you think there's there's some appeal to a place like Chicago where you have a lot of people, they have mountains around there, but they're not very big, and, and there could be some potential to have this year round experience. You know that so that that's a good question, but and the answer. Again, I'll oversimplify it. It's a little bit of both. The, uh, so let, let's take um, Texas, for example, right? There's obviously no ski resorts in Texas, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But no, there's a no. massive number of existing um, winter sports enthusiasts in Texas. They're not that far from Colorado. The, um, the, 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 and other you know, more local places are even closer. Um, the yeah, I'm sure we work in Texas. I'm sure we work in the Southeast market, call it Atlanta. The uh, the key for us is going to be unlike traditional resorts, whether they be ski resorts or any kind of resort, the we're going to be closer to the population center so that people can make this a two to four hour experience any day of the week. And that's kind of what makes the numbers work. The, um, the, the, and I think even culturally, every major culture you can think of in the U.S., which is really everything in the world because there's, you know, we're such a melting pot, everybody has some affinity for snow sports. The, um, the, they may live in a place right now where they don't, they're not able to participate them, participate in them. But the, uh, the, the, I really think as long as there's enough people to make our facilities work, it really doesn't matter that much what their, demograph- their demographics are as long as there's enough people. Because I think we will appeal um, 
every economic demographic, every cultural demographic, every ethnic demographic, I think we will appeal to. And that's kind of the one of the whole, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of why the uh, ski and snowboard industries have gotten so far behind us is the inclusiveness aspect of what we're doing. I mean, the uh, we're going to open the ability to attract and retain enthusiasts in our sport from every culture and every demographic. And that's hard to do. The ski and snowboard industry is really working hard. and They've got some fantastic programs in place to help people who are underrepresented in the sports get into the sports. But it's hard when you have to travel hours, the cost, the seasonality, all those things. We solve all that. We are where everybody lives. We're going to be take far less time and will be far less expensive. And in fact, on the very aggressive end, we'll have thousands and thousands of, of kids and their families from underrepresented groups who don't have the economics to participate come through our facilities for free. I mean, part of us being a community asset is being there for the whole community, not just the people who, who currently have the economics to do it. When you're open every day of the year, we have plenty of time where our facility is already built, is paid for, our staff's there, that we can bring people through, um, not worrying about the economics, just to create that experience for everybody in the community. That that I'm really looking forward to. It's such an interesting uh, point there, John. And, and I think the, the potential here is enormous because typically one of the biggest barriers to skiing is travel. And then there's the equipment and then there's the weather and then there's the cost. And there's so many things that get in the way. And one of the things that Big Snow has gotten a lot of accolades for is that, number one, it's smack dab in the middle of the New York City metropolitan area, which has 20 million people, largest metro area in the United States. And it's an incredibly diverse area. So it allows people who may not have thought of trying skiing before to try it. And so if you if you look at this and you multiply that concept across the country and, and let's say you have 20 facilities what is the potential of alpine x facilities as a whole to just act as this factory for creating new skiers who will then take that passion out to the real mountains well it, it, the, the the that's really i get goosebumps really thinking about that from a cultural thing in the u.s of being able to bring people together who traditionally have not shared experiences together, even though they live in the same communities. And that is absolutely what you're going to see with us. I saw it at Big Snow. You know, Big Snow, we were so happy. I took a big group up there, probably about 12 of us, um, the just having fun. And, and, and I noticed things like demographics and, and who's there. And it was just so cool seeing everybody have fun together. They all live in roughly the same community, but they may not all be in the same neighborhoods or, or you know, um, you know, interact with each other outside of a facility like that. And it was just great and positive. So I'm really, really excited about that nationally. Um, I grew up by our first facility just down the road from it in Fairfax, uh, which is really the DC area. The um, And it's like a lot of major areas. It's, it's economically split. The um, there's a lot of 
many, many fantastic people who are from more recent immigrant families. I mean, almost all of us are from you know, some level of immigrant family, just a question of how many generations back. And to be able to have all of us doing things together is just fantastic. Um, and I think across the U.S., there's just going to be huge demand and, 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 and appreciation of that kind of atmosphere that honestly, traditional resorts, that's not really their target. And I, I get it. It's not, it's not intentional. I mean, one of the things I love about the hotel business in general is just in, inclusivity has been, you know, the way we've run our businesses forever because the, uh, you know, any guest that you can get in the door is great for your business. And same thing with building our teams. We always have fantastically diverse teams in the hospitality business. The, um, but the cost and time have been challenging. This allows us to really fix the time issue and also fix the cost issue. I mean, e even at our regular pricing, forget the, the aggressive programs that we'll have helping the underrepresented groups, but even at regular pricing, it's just a fraction of the cost of most other kind of recreation experiences. It's certainly a fraction of the cost of an outdoor experience. I'd love to see people build to that. Um, the, the, it's fun building a resort where you're promoting health and wellness and people staying in shape. Um, I mean, it's, it's, that's good for the community. But there's a lot of things that have come out of this beyond just teaching people how to ski and board. Right, well, let's, let's talk about that Fairfax facility here, John, because this is going to be the first one that comes online. So as you mentioned, your first Alpine X resort will be in Fairfax, Virginia. Why did you choose Fairfax? Uh, well, so our, our team did a great job of starting to look at landfills nationwide. And they are, our team is based in, in Fairfax, Virginia. And so Fairfax County, um, learning of what our intent was, has been a great partner. Uh, Fairfax had a landfill that had closed 30 years ago or something like that. The, and they were, they were looking for a redevelopment, a repurposing opportunity for it. It has a natural slope to it, as most landfills do. They are, they, are, they are many mountains and urban areas. And so it was just a perfect repurposing of that site. The, like I said, I grew up miles from this site, so I, I actually know the area really well. The, uh, my kids grew up in the community as well. The, um, and it's just a fantastic first location because it's so close to where people live. And the D.C. area, like all major metro areas, there's a lot of fantastic experiences two to four hours from D.C. Many, many dozens of resorts, beaches, mountains, ski resorts, indoor water park resorts, everything you think of. But traffic is awful. <laughs> the, and and you're, you're, I know like when my kids were younger, you know, you had your kids involved in activities. It's hard to take a full weekend to go do things sometimes as much as you'd like to. So what the Fairfax site gives us is that ability to where it just, you don't even need to get on a highway to get there if you're local. There's, there's so many roads you can take to get to our facility. And so in general, we'll be looking to locate as close as, pop, as, close as possible to population centers 
just to make that ease of use, you know, a top priority. So how hard was it, John, to find that hill? And then I, I, th- I would imagine this is the hard part, getting permission to build on it. <laughs> uh, Fairfax is, is quite dense as it is. I, you know, it, it's it's not always easy in those sorts of areas to find a large site. So talk a little bit about how you identified that site and then got the permission to go ahead with this thing. So the uh, Fairfax has been a fantastic partner and um working with us towards that. We're still in the process of finalizing the site with Fairfax. It's not all done. We've had great support from the board the entire time, but it is a multi-year process for any site, not just Fairfax and not just an old landfill, but it is a multi-year process to get anything approved to build as, as all big commercial projects are. So we are well into that. We're about six months from wrapping up probably most of the work that we had to do to get the, the site kind of fully approved, um, the, the rough timeline. The, but you need, um, you know, we, it, it, it happened as a collaborative effort. And it kind of comes back to in the hospitality industry and in my whole career, everything's a team. The, uh, you know, these are, these are projects that are, it's not just our internal team, it's our partner in Fairfax. It's the local vendors that we have in Fairfax working towards doing something because it has to be good for the overall community. Really cognizant of things, environmental, um, traffic, um, the, 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 the way these are built, we do a fraction of the traffic of a supermarket because we're open so many hours a day and we limit our capacity so it's not too crowded. So our crowds are spread throughout a day and throughout a week. So even though we do a lot of visitors per year, the uh, it's a rolling admission, just like a big snow. You show up and you ski for two hours and you have a bite to eat. The um, So we never have, it's not like an event center where everybody's showing up and leaving at the same time. So we're really light on traffic. Before we even announced this, we did all the environmental work we could do around the landfill to make sure that it was a healthy environment. Um, this will sound funny, but Fairfax built a great landfill. And, and, and there are states, I won't name them, but there are sites that we have looked at where we can't build on landfills. It's just not the right thing for, for many reasons. Um, this one is, is clean, it's stable, and, and, and Fairfax has built other commercial projects on landfills. It's not new to the county that we're doing this. Um, Nationally, a lot of things have been built on landfills. So while it sounds novel, most people haven't thought about it. Um, But it's not, we're not breaking ground by building on a landfill. Um, But we did do a ton of work environmentally to make sure, A, that everything will be safe for our team and our guests, but B, that we also will be safe for the environment that we're dropping into, you know, and, and that we will maintain and improve the overall environmental quality, not not um, be negative to it. And how much does that save you, John, when you were able to find a natural hill to build on as opposed to Big Snow, which is built on uh, kind of a big steel ramp that they had to fabricate and construct? Uh, how, how much does that chop off the overall <laughs> design costs and, and how much does that simplify the project when you don't have to build that platform? I guess I would say it sounded like a good idea at the time from a cost standpoint. <laughs> the, okay. uh, it is a natural hill and it helps 
but building in a landfill also, we, we will add things that wouldn't happen on a flat piece of ground. So, so net, net, it probably is a little bit of savings, but there's the main reason for building on a landfill is it's one of few really positive beneficial reuses that we can think of for that type of property and it's so close to people. So if we were to try and find this size site commercially, we'd wind up being an hour or two from the city without traffic. And then with traffic, you know, who knows what it would be on a Friday or a, or a Saturday. So, so the main purpose for the landfill sites is not really cost, it's really location. That's interesting. Are there markets where you think you could build on natural hills? If you look at a place like Atlanta or Charlotte with this hilly terrain they have around the city, uh, do you think that's a possibility or or in most cases, are there environmental regulations that are going to make that just too difficult to do? Uh, no, absolutely. Those, those sites would be ideal. So, so building on a hill, a natural hill is ideal if it's the right location from a population standpoint. The uh, environmentally, you know, everything we do in all development right now, it is designed to be environmentally sensitive. We are leaders towards carbon neutrality. I mean, we are investing a lot of time, effort, and money and research in creating, you know, getting as close to carbon neutral as we can for our facilities. But also, we want to help. Fairfax County is shooting for a carbon neutrality by 2040. It's a pretty aggressive goal. And we want to be a poster child for them in terms of how you can build a modern building in this environment, you know, this, and, and, and help work towards that goal. So tell us about the skiing here, John. Uh, number of trails, lifts, what kind of lifts, how much snowmaking, firepower, what kind of guns, what kind of groomer. Just get, tell us everything you know about what the skiing will be like. Well, fortunately, we have a lot of experts, of which I'm not one on a lot of these topics. So I rely heavily on our team for a lot of this. So in terms of design, um, it'll be varied terrain from green, blue, black. So so and and they will interchange to a certain point, kind of like you see at, at some outdoor resorts as you get closer to the bottom. So you'll have several ways down the hill from the top. The uh, a big part of that will be a significant terrain park. And the, I'll use it again, Big Snow as an example. I, I thought their terrain park was a lot of fun. And it's actually kind of also used as a another run down the hill, if you will, to vary the experience for people that, like I used it half the time I was there. I don't do jumps. The, um, but it's just fun to go down and go around those things because um, it gives you a nice varied experience down. So so you'll have multiple experiences like that in the snow dome itself. You'll also have a huge, for lack of a better term, we call it a snow play area that will, I say, think of a indoor water park, but in, in snow. So slides, tubes, everything you can think of for kids in the snow dome itself, that'll be significant. And then a separate area, the, uh, that will be just for training. So what we really want to do is be able to have people learn in a very um, comfortable fashion, not in the middle of everybody else flying past them, 
the um, so the uh, the you'll have all those distinct areas within the four hundred thousand square foot snow dome, and then outside of that, the uh, we'll have a hundred plus thousand square feet of dry activities or warm activities outside of the snow dome. In addition to that, and, and what's the vertical drop on the skiing itself? The it'll be north of two hundred feet. So we're still tweaking it a little bit. The, um, but it'll be, we're working with um, some high level ski coaches and people, uh, competitive ski groups to make sure that the facility we have, primarily we want to make sure is great for training competitive level skiers in addition to our recreational aspect. We'll have events. I mean, you're not going to have huge events indoors, but what we, but we want it to be a facility that on a year-round basis, certainly the out-of-season basis, we can train competitive-level skiers and boarders year-round. So we're working with um, coaches, trainers right now to help us design that. And what are you thinking for chairlifts? Big Snow has a high-speed quad, which is pretty aggressive for a for 130 vertical feet. But have you <laughs> thought about which kind of lifts you'll put in there? The, uh, yeah, so we're we're – some of this is in process. So their quad was great. The uh, we're either doing two quads or something else because we'll our our, you know, our facility is roughly double the size of of Big Snow. Um, the, the we just have a lot more space than they did. Like I said, what I loved about theirs was the the I was expecting it to feel smaller to me after skiing a bunch of these in Europe, but it was still so much fun. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be huge to be a really good time. We were with people. The people we were with were our group was everybody from a couple of people that had never skied before, all the way through up to people who grew up in the Northeast, <laughs> who were very who are very good. I'm kind of in the middle of that pack. The and it was just a great time. So it was such a positive experience to see how happy people were there, including our group. Um, but anyway, in terms of specific equipment. The um, the we'll get more on that out at some point. The um, you know our our you know it'll be your typical groomers. The um, the snow equipment we have an engineering firm that designs the indoor ski domes in the Middle East and Europe, working on our equipment list. The um, so I mean making it and maintaining it indoors is a little different than it is outdoors. So most of the expertise is coming out of Europe. Um, and we'll, you know, the, the, it'll be a big focus on efficiency and, um, and snow quality. So you're, you're building one of these first in Fairfax, John, and, and you hope to have 20 eventually. To what extent is this Fairfax facility meant to be your proof of concept? And to what extent is it the first step in your master plan of resorts that will move forward together in different phases of development? So, so in other words, what I'm saying is, are you going to wait for Fairfax to launch and, and be successful and see what works and what doesn't before you break ground on others? Or, you know, we're looking at 2024. That's three years away before you open this one. Are you are you going to have others that are sort of in the process of starting even before Fairfax opens? Yeah, we'll definitely have others starting before Fairfax opens. And proof of concept, the concept's really been proved. I mean, Yes, it's proved internationally and not in the U.S. quite as much yet. 
the um, but but the the proof of concept isn't our main focus out of Fairfax. The number the numbers um, will work well in that community. The again demographically, I can't tell you exactly what the cutoff is going to be for size of market. The, uh, but what I would expect is because these facilities, you're four to five years from the day you identify a site and then you need to go get zoning and everything else you need to do, you're four plus years to open something. So we are working on uh, the next few projects right now. They're not announced yet. The uh, the My goal would be to, when Fairfax opens, that we'd already be in a position to be opening at least every 18 months and then get that pushed down to a year. And then beyond that, you can accelerate beyond that. But I would expect that we will open, you know, be opening every 12 to 18 months after Fairfax opens. And how different are these experiences going to be, John? I I, I think you probably don't want a cookie cutter experience. Like you don't want it to feel like a McDonald's of skiing. Um, how, how much are you going to try to incorporate different elements, um, uh, based on, you know, whatever geography you can find or landfill or hill or, or the platform you have to build or, or property, the size of the property you can get, um, how, how different are these things going to be from one another? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. And I have the benefit of having worked with terrific brand people at Great Wolf, where the brand was defined by the quality of experience and not the exact experience. So what that does is give you a varied um, set of experiences for each location. They don't all have to be exactly the same. The quality of experience needs to be the same everywhere, right? But branding doesn't mean everything is the same. Branding means everybody feels the same about their experience. So some of it will be regional. I mean, simple things like food and beverage. We'd have different food and beverage in certain markets just to fit more of a local feel. The, um, the, 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 we will learn as we go, and, and not just even from experience, but entertainment keeps evolving. The um, I mean, we're putting an outdoor mountain coaster in our facility at Fairfax. So great outdoor experience. You've seen them at many of the outdoor ski resorts out there. People love them. The, um, but who knows what somebody's going to think of five years from now in terms of experiences, things to do. So we'll have significant indoor, we call it indoor adventure area at our facility. Every bit of this will evolve over time. Even within the ski dome, the um, experiences will evolve. I mean, equipment evolves. Um, what people are interested in evolves. There's been so much of a tie between skateboarding and snowboarding that I really noticed, you know, with all the Olympic activity going on. The, um, there's, I expect the terrain parks to evolve a lot and get a lot more use potentially even than they have been, because that's where a lot of people are going to transfer their interest from outdoor to indoor activity. So the the quality of experience, the general experience will be consistent under the brand, but each each facility will carry its own special character. 
So it sounds like you have a few potential sites identified that you're not ready to talk about yet. Are there any sites you can rule out? I guess the one I think of is Salt Lake City. You know, you're 45 minutes from some of the best skiing on the continent, if not in the world, some of the best snow. Uh, you have a ton of skiers there um, and and maybe there's your round potential. But but are there any markets where you're like, eh, it's just not going to work? Well, Salt, so Salt Lake's a perfect example of what I mentioned about needing to work through the demographic requirements to make a facility work. And one thing you need to be careful about is trying to downsize a facility to fit a smaller market. It doesn't usually work real well, um, but we don't know yet. So the answer is on the Salt Lake, the, the, and, and we get, we're, we're getting a lot of calls from markets where people are interested in seeing a facility in their market. And, and some of the answers are definitely, and some of them are, we don't know yet. And that's just the honest answer on a, on a market. Like a, certainly there's a, a huge um, committed uh, part of the population that would enjoy a facility. If the numbers work, we would love to be there. The, um, but we would need to do research first. And it, I mean, I love going, Salt Lake's a fantastic place to go year round, not just for skiing and boarding, but it's just, Really nice. You, you can head out from the airport. It's just beautiful out there. So I want to just talk about Big Snow for a moment. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of things they do really well. They've adopted this low cost model um, that you mentioned. Uh, you go there, you get your skis, you get your warm weather gear, you get a lift ticket, you get a lesson. And they have this great terrain based learning system that Snow Operating, their parent company, developed and has deployed at dozens of resorts throughout the country. Um, what, what Big Snow doesn't have is uh, is any kind of charm. It's 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 literally in a dome, in a parking lot, next to a football stadium on the side of an interstate. Uh, you can see it from any Manhattan skyscraper. It's it's a super ugly building. Uh-huh. And it was, it, it was like, it actually stood there for almost 15 years before it was occupied. It was this giant billion dollar development, multi-billion dollar development that that is sort of a model in, um, in, in how to not bring something online. Anyway, Big Snow does a great job. They also run Mountain Creek, which is my home mountain out in New Jersey, and they make magic out there because they're they they really know what they're doing. Um, but the place is where it is. When you look at that sort of aesthetic element of it, 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 is that something you're focused on, like kind of making this look a little nicer and put them in a little nicer environments, maybe? Well, yeah. So let, let's give credit where credit is due. The uh, my experience at Big Snow and just reputationally. They are making a great experience in a facility that was designed 20 years ago, right? The, even though it only opened two years ago, it was designed a long time ago. The, uh, but the quality of experience was really good. So the, they are a great operator, um, and they're doing a lot with, in, in indoor snow terms, is a relatively small facility. The, uh, they do a lot with it. So. I thought it was beautiful because I love looking at these things, but <laughs> so, uh, the, 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 but from the outside, but I just thought it was cool pulling up to it, but the, maybe it just got me excited about what we're doing. Um, but yeah, aesthetically, um, the, um, I mean, we're, we're well buffered from the local community where we're building the, the landfill because it was a landfill. There's yeah. a huge buffer of trees around the whole thing. Right. So okay. yeah, fortunately, the, the, uh, anybody nearby doesn't need to be staring at this, the, uh, just like they weren't staring at the landfill itself. So that, that's helpful. 
but aesthetics is going to be more of a resort type facility. So the, the dome itself, there'll be a huge focus on aesthetics from the outside. And then the, 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 uh, the lodge, the Alpine, you know, the lodge and hotel will have certainly feel more like you're pulling up to a resort than, um, you know, than a commercial building. I mean, that's the, that's the benefit that we have of space that they didn't have up there is we're a freestanding facility and we want the drive up, you know, we want to feel, you feel like you're pulling into a nice, great Alpine resort right in the middle of Fairfax County. Yeah. I, I, I want to echo what you said about big snow. I really haven't heard a bad review yet. And, and, uh, they actually came on the podcast and, and talked about that facility and about Mountain Creek. Um, and, and, and everyone who goes there has a really good time. I, I'm wondering, though, New York City metro area has 20 million people. Is there room for a second facility? Is this a market that you're considering in your master plan? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, we have not looked at sites up there. The uh, I'm guessing you could put one on the... Pocono side of New York, kind of like where the uh, there's a Kalahari, Camelback, Great Wolf Lodge are all out there. And they, they pull from kind of Philly and New York and New Jersey combined. The, um, and yeah, population-wise, certainly I would think there'd be room for, for two. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's three substantial indoor water park resorts just <laughs> in our to the west of all that stuff. So the, um, the, 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 and the target market for our kind of resorts is kind of two to 90. The, uh, we have a much broader demographic than most resorts do that have a narrower focus. So yeah, population wise, certainly there should be room. Um, and businesses like ours, you know, you're, you're rarely going to see somebody put something right next to somebody else. It just doesn't make sense, you know, for anybody. The, um, it, it, as these get built, and if multiple companies are building them, they'll they'll tend to be spread out um, just by good business practice anyway. So, John, how much have you thought about Alpine X's place in the broader lift serve skiing ecosystem? So, c- could this be a feeder, act as a feeder to larger resorts in say, like say someone is starting out in Florida? Or, or Texas. And there, there's huge skier populations in both of those states, as it is, right, uh, that, that go and, and take a Western trip every year. But could you imagine maybe a partnership with, say, Copper Mountain in Colorado, where, hey, you, you started Alpine X, and then you get, you know, 20% off your your uh, your stay at Copper and your lift tickets and everything else, or, or just, just, just a, for example, like building that sort of pipeline to, to encourage the person from Miami to to turn this, to make it more than a novelty and, and to make it a lifestyle, which is, which is really how you become a skier, right? And, and, and think of yourself as a skier and, and make it something you do and dedicate vacation time to. Have you thought about that kind of partnership? Well, this is, you're, you're exactly on the right path. I mean, we are intentionally a feeder, a transition to all those kinds of places very intentionally. So we don't, replace that experience. Um, we're going to completely complement it and we're going to open the doors for a whole lot of people who would not have ventured out to the places you're describing uh, without 
getting introduced to it through us. So, yeah, I'm sure we will connect. We're already talking to a lot of the local ski areas around us because we'll be a great feeder for them, certainly. The um, and and we'll be, I'm sure, we'll be having more national level talks. Both Vale and Altera already have local ski resorts drivable from DC. The um, and, and I, I, I'm guessing they bought them for the same kind of reason that they want feeder markets for their bigger resorts in other places. I'm guessing is their you know one of their motivations. And we will just add to that that's what we're going to do, we're going to bring so many people into the sport who probably would not have ventured out otherwise from it, you know, the, um, that we will feed all those things and, and expand the sport in general, just in total skier count. You know, if we have, you know, 10 facilities open, I mean, you could have, I don't know, 800, 8 million, 10 million visitors a year. That's substantial in the world of skiing just by itself. Oh, yeah. Even So, yeah. There's a we'll we'll be we'll be cutting edge and equipment development. The we're already in conversations. A lot of this stuff because we're open every day. My rental equipment will get used geometrically more than an outdoor ski resort's rental equipment. So that allows me to a rent it cheaper, the but also to do a lot more with it. Right. So the the our goals are kind of twofold. One is to make the sport easier for people who are less experienced. The um, the but also to reduce the cost by spreading this fixed cost over 365 days and 16 or 18 hours a day versus a seasonal resort. Well, lots of big things ahead, John. It's very exciting to watch this unfold. I cannot thank you enough for coming on and, and talking to us about it. And sometime before you get this first one online in 2024, you're going to have to come back and tell us how you how far you are along in the master plan and, and what we can expect in more detail out of this Fairfax facility. So very exciting times ahead, and I, I wish you the best of luck with it. Well, Stuart, I really appreciate your interest, but also the overall interest and support from the skiing and boarding community already. It's just been fantastic. It's, it's fun to be a part of. And like I said, we have a big team, a lot of involved people from the sport. The, uh, and it's just been fun, you know, moving this thing down the road. That's John Emery, CEO of Alpine X. We didn't really address this, but when he launched Great Wolf Lodge, that was a pretty novel concept and frankly a huge gamble. But as John said, there are now imitators of Great Wolf Lodge all over. It could work here too. With year-round operations and skiing in places where it was impossible before, this could become skiing's ultimate feeder system. What do you think? Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal and let me know your thoughts or just reply to any Storm Skiing email if you're on the mailing list. And if you're not on the mailing list, why not? The Storm Skiing Journal is the heart of the storm. And you're going to want to get in on that at stormskiing.com. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.